After the sermon, let us sing from number 426, stanza 5, 7, and 9. 426, stanza 5, 7, and 9. Dear congregation, what is your hope in light of the coming judgment day? What will be the basis of being led into heaven? Will it be something of your who you are, what you've done, your efforts? or your experiences? Is it what your hands have done or what you feel or do? That must fail. That cannot give you peace with God. It's the gospel that tells us the only way to have peace with God, hope, in light of the coming judgment is this, in my place condemned he stood. And that's what you can write over the sermon this morning, in my place condemned he stood. And we'll see three things. First of all, who he is in revelation. Secondly, how he responds to accusation. And thirdly, what he gives in substitution. In my place, condemned he stood, first, who he is in revelation. Secondly, how he responds to accusation. And thirdly, what he gives in substitution. They are bringing the Lord Jesus to the judgment hall of Pontius Pilate. After all, the religious trial of the Lord Jesus before the Sanhedrin has been completed. They're all agreed that the Lord Jesus must die because He has claimed to be the Son of God, and in their minds He's guilty of blasphemy, and such a one should die for his sins. But the Sanhedrin can't execute anyone. Only the Roman authorities can condemn people to death, so they have to hand him over to Pontius Pilate, and at daybreak they make their way to the judgment hall of Pilate with Jesus, their prisoner. Before Pilate, the civil trial will take place. Who was Pontius Pilate? Well, his name is included in the Apostolic Creed, one of the great confessions of the church. He was the Roman governor of Judea, Apparently, he was born in Spain, married the daughter of the emperor, emperor Tiberius, and that explains how he became the governor of Judea. He's a harsh man, a proud man, proud of the power that he wielded that he says to Jesus in John 19, verse 10, Knowest thou not that I have power to crucify thee and power to release thee? And Jesus reminds him that he would have no power unless it was given to him by God. Pilate is the governor and the judge, and he shows himself to be really incompetent and uh, heavy-handed, uh, ruthless man. 
Luke 13 records how Pilate ordered a group of Galilean worshipers in the temple to be slaughtered for no good reason. Pilate has not endeared himself to the Jewish people. He's insensitive to the people he's governing, and he's weak, and he's an unprincipled judge who will do what he can to protect his person and keep his position. And now the Lord Jesus is brought to him. The Jewish leaders have found him guilty of blasphemy, but that charge would not stand in a Roman court. That would not be a reason why the Romans would have such a person executed. So another charge will have to be presented to Pilate, and the charge that they make up is the charge of treason, wanting to overthrow the Roman governor because this Jesus claims to be a king and speaks of his own kingdom. And Pilate begins his interrogation. Mark, in his gospel, sums it all up with one verse and one question. John, in his gospel account, will tell us more in John 18. But yes, again, Mark sums it up with with one verse and one question. Verse 2, art thou the king of the Jews? And the Lord Jesus answers, thou sayest it. It is as you say. You've said it, Pilate. The Lord Jesus cannot deny the truth. Yes, the gospel writer John records more of what Jesus said, like he said that his kingdom is not of this world. It's an entirely different kind of kingship. He has not come to be an earthly king, to establish an earthly kingdom with physical borders supported by an army and maintained by taxes. His kingdom is not a physical kingdom, but a spiritual kingdom. It's not an earthly kingdom, but a heavenly kingdom. His kingdom will not be advanced by opposition or by violence or by terrorism, but it is true He is king. Micah 5 verse 2, He's the ruler from Bethlehem, the ruler in Israel. Isaiah 9 verse 7, of the increase of His government and peace there shall be no end. And Mary, his mother, had heard it too from the lips of the heavenly messenger in Luke 1, verse 32 and 33. And the Lord God shall give unto him the throne of his father David, and he shall reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there shall be no end. In Revelation 19, verse 16, Jesus is called King of kings, Lord of lords, And so before Pontius Pilate, he cannot deny that he is king. But he's a kind of king that Pilate has never met before. He's a suffering king. He's a dying king who purchases his people by shedding his blood. That's how he reveals himself here. But do you see what reason we have to bow before King Jesus? Don't you think? If He is King of kings and Lord of lords, what reason we have to bow before Him? 
also as we meet Him as the suffering King and dying King. And isn't there a royalty that He displays even in His suffering? There's this royalty that He displays even before His accusers and before His judge. There's this glory about Him in His meekness and in His gentleness and in His even unwavering confession. You're right, Pilate. I am King. And those who look with spiritual eyes Those who look with eyes of faith see Him as King. Do you? Do you see Him as King? Have you come to bow before Him? Have your eyes been opened by the Holy Spirit to see Him as King as you see yourself in your guilt and Jesus as King in, in, in His glory and in His grace? Even His suffering, He doesn't conceal who He is. In His suffering, He reveals who He is as the King whom we need whose kingdom will endure, and whose subjects are privileged, whose citizens have a prospect and a future. But no, not everyone sees Him as He is. And not everyone trusts in Him. And not everyone worships Him. People accuse Him. And how does he respond? That's our second point, how he responds to accusation. How he responds to accusation, verse 3. And the chief priests accused him of many things. The religious leaders are going to throw mud now. They're going to hurl their accusations against him. You can imagine something of a turmoil. One shouts one thing, and another shouts another thing, and He's got something better to say. Again, Mark doesn't tell us what they accuse him of. Luke and Luke 23 verse 2 will expand there in his gospel account and accuse and, and tell, tell us that they accuse him of three things. They accuse him for one thing of perverting the nation. He's corrupting our nation. He's misleading our nation. He stirs up trouble. He's riotous. He's not the kind of person you want in our nation. He'll sink our nation. The second thing they accuse him of is that he tells us not to pay taxes. He opposes Caesar's taxes. He tells us not to pay the taxes that Rome demands. It's about the national coffers, Pilate. Caesar won't like this fellow. And the third thing they accuse him of, that he claims to be Christ, the king. He's seditious. He's guilty of treason. Pilate, if you let this Jesus live, you won't be in charge anymore. Of course, these accusations are not true. 
They're false accusations. They're trumped-up accusations. He did not pervert the nation. How could he? He was pure in heart. He went about doing good, Acts 10.38 says. Not doing bad. And he healed the sick. He raised the dead. He saved the lost. He wasn't perverting the nation. He wasn't corrupting the nation at all. And regarding taxes, he did not oppose paying taxes. He said, Mark 12, 17, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And he never encouraged rebellion against the political leaders. He never encouraged riots in the streets. But Jesus doesn't defend himself. He doesn't offer any self-defense or any rebuttal. He answered nothing. And Pilate is amazed, and he asks, Answerest thou nothing? Pilate's never seen this before. I mean, those who are accused, they often have an answer. They, they, they defend themselves. They, they fire back words in response. That's what the accused often do. They, they deny the charges. They defend themselves. They hurl accusations back at their accusers. I mean, that's how it is when people are accused. They're vocal. They're, they're loud. They, they have an excuse. But the Lord Jesus doesn't say a word. Boys and girls, He's silent. And it's not that He was silent because of guilt. I mean, boys and girls, that's how it can be with, with us when you get caught taking that cookie that you weren't supposed to. Th then you're silent because you don't have an excuse. You're, you're guilty. When you're caught doing something, young people, You can't say anything because you're guilty. But that's not the case here. It's not a silence because of guilt, and it's not a silence because of fear. I mean, sometimes we can be afraid to speak, especially in the face of enemies. We, we feel ourselves cornered, and any word may be the wrong word, but then we're silent because we're afraid. But Jesus isn't silent because of guilt, and he's not silent because of fear. Could he not have answered something in response? Could he not have defended himself? Sure, he could have. He could have given an answer that would have tongue-tied anyone who hurled accusations at him. He was able to speak. Matthew 22, verse 46 gives us an account. He was able to speak so that his opponents could not answer him a word but he was silent, voluntarily silent, deliberately silent. Why? Why is he silent? I mean, you could say it didn't make much sense to answer. How would his answers have helped? These religious leaders have made up their mind. 
They're filled with hatred. They're filled with enmity and animosity against them. Nothing could stop them in their purpose and plan, not even this Judge Pontius Pilate. That's what you can say about why he's silent. Plus, he is teaching his people that there are times to suffer silently. I don't deny that it's difficult to be falsely accused. It hurts when people are busy talking about you, and it hurts when what they're saying about you isn't true. It hurts when people put you in a bad light. And it's our tendency to defend ourselves and to try and set all the falsehoods straight. But there are times... Jesus is teaching us here. There are times when we say, I suffered silently because thy will is best. Psalter 106 verse 2 says. That's what Jesus does. And it's what the Bible had foretold. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He is brought as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is dumb, so he openeth not his mouth. There is meekness here. There is this gentleness here, the characteristic of a gentle and quiet spirit that, as Peter would say in First Peter 2, that when others revile us, we do not need to revile in return. Someone has said this, nothing in the Christian character glorifies God so much as patient suffering. That's why he's silent. Plus, he isn't just standing before an earthly judge, he's standing before the heavenly judge. And no, he doesn't have any guilt of himself, but his people do. We are sinners. We are guilty of perverting the nation. We are guilty of corrupting others. We haven't gone about doing good. We've gone about doing bad. And we don't like showing honor and submission to those who are in authority over us. We'd rather complain about them. Have you never discovered that you're guilty of these very sins? These kinds of sins that Jesus was accused of. But Jesus is silent because we have broken His covenant. We have broken His law. But Jesus stands in the breach and He is silent as the Father lays on Him the sins of His people. And he'll take those sins to the cross and pay the penalty that sin deserves. Who he is in Revelation. He's king. How he responds to accusation. He's silent. And thirdly, what he gives in substitution. That's our third point. What he gives in substitution. Pilate knows what the religious leaders are doing. 
He knows what is behind the hostility of the chief priests. He understands what's driving this. Uh, Verse 10 tells us he knew that the chief priests had delivered him for envy. The Lord Jesus was a threat to, to them because they were losing their stranglehold on the people. They were losing their position of power and control of the people. Jesus is exposing the sin of these religious leaders. He's a threat to their comfortable way of life. He's a threat to their influence and control of religious life in Israel. That's why they want to get rid of him. Envy is driving this. Envy. Yeah, envy is a deadly cancer that can eat away at us from the inside. It's when we're unhappy at the success of others. It's when we're resentful of others. Envy is the twin of jealousy. It's the desire to have what someone else has and is willing to do anything to bring others down. Proverbs 14, verse 30 says, Envy is the rottenness of the bones. It makes us restless, resentful. It's why we need to take refuge to Christ instead of getting rid of Christ. But it's envy that's driving this. It's driving all of this. But Pilate still sees a way out of his dilemma. He could not let this continue to get out of hand. He has to maintain order. I mean, if he can't diffuse the tension, that would not be good. If Rome found out that there was another uproar and uprising in Judea, he would lose his position as governor. But Pilate doesn't believe Jesus is guilty. He's convinced that he's done nothing wrong, nothing worthy of death. What's the way out of his dilemma? What's the way out of his complicated situation? Verse 6 tells us that he had a custom of releasing a prisoner at the Passover feast. It gave the dominated nation the opportunity to have their say. Maybe it was an act of diplomacy, but it fit with the feast of the Passover that celebrated the release from bondage. The Jews could request one man to be released from Roman prison. Pilate feels that that would be a convenient solution out of his dilemma. Seems like a suitable plan to resolve this matter. The crowd is growing, and they're raising their voices, demanding, verse 8, the annual release of a prisoner. So Pilate gives them an option. They can choose between Barabbas or Jesus. Pilate puts them on the same ballot, you might say. He puts forward a duo. They can choose whether to release Barabbas or release Jesus. Who was this Barabbas, boys and girls? Barabbas, he has a unique name. 
His name means son of a father. He was in prison. He was locked up. He had already been tried and found guilty of crimes that he had done. He had been condemned to death. We're told in verse 7 he was an insurrectionist, guilty of trying to overthrow the government. It seems that he was a fanatical nationalist, an extremist, one who stirred up rebellion against Rome, trying to bring upheaval in society, trying to bring about political freedom for the Jews. And in the midst of the insurrection, he had murdered. He was an assassin guilty of taking the lives of others. Yes, he had murdered in the insurrection, and John also calls him, John 18, verse 40, a robber. I said that the name Barabbas meant son of a father. How did he get that name? Uh, Some have suggested that he maybe was the son of a well-known rabbi, but they maybe better would have, it would have been better if they'd called Barabbas a child of a devil. He was a wicked man, clearly a child of our father, the first Adam. Is it a fair duo? No, it isn't. I mean, think of Let's make some comparisons here on the basis. I mean, think of their origin. Barabbas is of earthly origin. Jesus is of heavenly origin. Think of their relationship to the law. Barabbas is a lawbreaker. Jesus is a law keeper. He's a law fulfiller. Barabbas is guilty. Jesus is not guilty. Barabbas went about doing bad. Jesus went about doing good. Barabbas is a prince of war. Jesus is the prince of peace. Barabbas dishonored God. Jesus honored God and glorified God. That's the choice set before the people. Who who do you want released unto you, Barabbas or Jesus? And while the duo is presented to the people, the chief priests stir up the people, verse 11. They move the people. It's, It's a strong word. It's a word used for earthquakes. They're agitating the people. They're shaking up the people. Maybe they said, I don't know, but maybe they said, look, look at him. Look at that Jesus. He's so powerless now. He can't deliver us from the Romans. I don't know what they said, but, but when the time comes to choose, they cry for the release of Barabbas. And when Pilate asks, well, what am I supposed to do with Jesus then? Then they shout at the top of their lungs in verses 12 and 13, Crucify him! He must die! How fickle. People are. At the beginning of the week, they were cheering him. At the end of the week, they're jeering him and sneering him. Peer pressure. The mob mentality can influence us so easily. And now, 
that Pilate has buckled under the pressure and has given the authority to the people to make the decision. Pilate can't go back. He's willing to please the people, verse 15, content the people. And he gives in to the demands of the crowd, and the Lord Jesus will have to die on the cross. Now, what suffering this means for the Lord Jesus. Do you see him in the judgment hall? Look at him. He's beaten. He's spat upon. He's bleeding. And he's been put on a duel with a murderer, an insurrectionist. He is numbered with the transgressors as if he is one of them. Yes, as if he is the worst of them. And in the eyes of the people, Barabbas may live. But Jesus must die, even though he has done nothing amiss. That's how he suffers. And that's how he goes to the cross, willingly, voluntarily. Why? Out of love sinners like you and me out of love to save his people what kind of people are they people who are not so nice people who haven't been good and kind but who are hostile enemies of God who raise their voices sometimes in hostility and opposition. People who by nature feel more of a bond to a murderer than the Messiah. People who by nature choose for a terrorist instead of the Savior. Have you ever seen that? What stirs us up is the desire for a political leader rather than a spiritual leader. We want someone who will stand up against authority rather than someone who gives his life in mercy. We want someone who shows rebellion more than someone who shows submission. We want liberation from some political oppression instead of salvation from our spiritual corruption. We want a Messiah who fits our own demands, who will give us a better life here rather than a king who talks about the need to take up our cross and follow him. And when we hear of this Savior Jesus, we say, no thanks. Away with him. What shall I do with this Jesus? We have to do something with him. We have to do something with Jesus, young people. You can't remain neutral. 
and by nature we reject him. Just as Pilate did, as the religious leaders did, as the crowd did, and were filled with envy, and were not happy, and we have no peace with God, and we are not forgiven, and that's how we are by nature. And how sad and what a terrible way to live that way and to die that way. But can I tell you another way? You see, as the Lord Jesus goes to the cross, that means another one can go free. Barabbas may go free. He he was in prison on death row most likely to be executed with the two other murderers. And maybe early that morning from his prison cell, he heard the noise of the crowd and the tumult and the turmoil, even people shouting, and and he hears his name being shouted. And then he hears the terrible cry, Crucify him! And he was a condemned criminal waiting for judgment. He knows he has to die soon. It's the punishment that he deserves. And then there is footsteps coming down the hall to his prison cell. And he hears a key opening his prison cell, and the door goes open, and maybe Barabbas thought, this is it. My time has come to die. It's over now. And the prison guard says, Barabbas, I've come to get you. You're free. What? Me? Free? Yes, Barabbas. It's the Passover. Someone else will die in your place. Jesus, who performed miracles, who raised the dead, he's going to Golgotha in your place, in your stead. The cross which was intended for you, Barabbas, will be taken by another. You're free. You can go home free. I can't imagine what went through Barabbas. I mean, that morning he was on death row. But now he may live. That morning he was a prisoner. But now he may be free. Barabbas was released Jesus was crucified. No, I don't know if Barabbas came to understand the significance. I don't know if Barabbas came to understand the gospel meaning of this, but it's clearly pictured here. I mean, we too deserve death. We too are condemned to die. The wages of sin is death, and we're sinners. It's true of each of us by nature. We're guilty of insurrection against God. In Adam, 
We declared war against God, and we've become great rebels against God. We've resisted God. We've transgressed His commandments. We've rebelled against His goodness. We've murdered in our heart. Then we may hear of someone who has come to take the condemnation that we deserve. It's what Peter says in 1 Peter 3, verse 18. He suffered the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. He's the substitute. He's the one who takes the place of others. I I read a story of British POWs in a Japanese prison camp during the Second World War. These prisoners were forced to work on a railway bridge. And one day at the end of their work, they counted up the shovels, and one of the shovels is missing. A Japanese guard shouts hysterically, threatening that these prisoners will all die if someone doesn't confess to have taken this shovel and hidden it somewhere. And eventually one prisoner steps forward, and the guards come. And with the end of their rifles, they club him to death. And then they recount the shovels, and none of the shovels were missing after all. But you see, that one prisoner died to spare the rest. Or the story of Steve Scheibner, pilot of, for working for American Airlines on September 10, 2001. He was looking to fly a plane the next day on September 11, and he checked the computer database and found a flight, Flight 11. And no pilot had been scheduled, no pilot was listed to fly this flight from Boston to Los Angeles, and he filled in his own name and his information. And the only way that he could have been bumped from the flight is if a senior pilot came within a 30-minute window and signed his name instead. That rarely happens, apparently, but this time it did. Tom McGinnis signed to fly that plane from Boston to Los Angeles. And Steve Scheibner was not on that plane when it crashed into the Twin Towers on September 11, 2001, because someone else had taken his place. That's what Jesus did. He died in the place of others. He bore the suffering that my sins deserve. He hung on the cross in your stead if you believe on Him. That exchange doesn't take place because I paid for it or because I have sought Him so humbly or because I've shed many tears. Barabbas did not contribute anything to his freedom either. The only thing that could be said of Barabbas was that he was worthy of death. And that's true for you and me. But if I trust in the Lord Jesus... If you trust in the Lord Jesus, 
then you may escape the condemnation that you deserve and you may have peace with God and you may rest in the one who gave himself as the substitute. In my place condemned he stood. I must have the Lord Jesus Christ. Young people, you must have the Lord Jesus Christ. Otherwise, you're still on death row, awaiting execution that can happen at any time. But he comes to you and me in the gospel, and he says, I came to take the place of sinners like you. Let, let me be your substitute. Let me be your Savior in the way of faith and repentance. He wants to trade with you. Take the place that you deserve. Hide in Him. Find your liberty and freedom from the power of sin and from the guilt of sin in Jesus. Then you may live. Then I may live. Truly live because the price has been paid by another. And that brings with it a desire for thankfulness. Steve Scheibner, a pilot, he spoke of someone else taking his seat on Flight 11, and he said this, I realize now I'm living on borrowed time, and I have an obligation to live my days with a sense of urgency to glorify God. Do you understand that? Are these words of Philip Bliss true for you? In my place condemned he stood, sealed my pardon with his blood. Then you'll want to Realize living that you're living on borrowed time. You'll want to live for him with a sense of urgency to glorify him. Amen. We sing number 426, stanza 5, 7, and 9.